The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. From ancient philosophers to modern scientists, we have been perplexed by happiness. On this week's episode, we are joined by Paul Dolan to discuss what happiness is and whether it should affect public policy. We explore the difference between purpose and happiness and look at how we, as a society, can find ways to promote happiness. Paul also touches on his future work on polarization and its relationship to happiness and friendship. Paul Dolan is a professor of behavioral science at the LSE, and his main research interests are human behavior and happiness, as well as the relationships between them. He is the author of the best-selling books, Happiness by Design and Happy Ever After. He is also the host of the Duck Rabbit podcast about the polarization problem in our society. This interview was recorded live at our festival, How the Light Gets In. If you would like to book a place at the upcoming London edition in September, just use the code RTIMES for 20% off your tickets. For more information, just follow the link in the show notes. It's now time to welcome Paul Dolan to Philosophy for Our Times. Paul Dolan, welcome to How the Light Gets In. Thank you. Hello. Nice to speak to you. So what is happiness? Is it a feeling like pleasure and pain, or is it something different? That's a good place to start. Well, so we've had two and a half thousand years of ethical discourse about it, so we're probably not going to get an answer in the next two and a half minutes. But having said that, I think it's located in our experiences, in what we do and how we feel based on what we do and who we're with and what we think about. And it comes in twin set of experiences, I think. On the one hand, pleasure, joy, contentment, all the adjectives that we use for the positive emotions and then the negative emotions that are also the obverse of the pleasure. So there will be pain and anger and worry and stress. It's interesting that we have many more negative adjectives mm. than we do have positive ones. So that's the first set of experiences, pleasure, as I call it. The other is purpose. Still located in our experiences, still in what we do, who we're with and what we think about, but things that feel like they're worthwhile, meaningful, fulfilling, they have a point to them. And the opposite of those would be futility and pointlessness and things that feel like they're a waste of time. And I argue that for all of us, we're trying to find a balance between pleasure and purpose. It's not to say that, we're, that it's the same for everybody. You might be driven more by one, I might be more by the other. But each of us is trying to work out that balance between things that we find pleasurable on the one hand and things that we find purposeful on the other. So I take your point that there's no one formula that's going to fit everyone. But... Is there a question of whether we're very good at identifying the things that make us happy? So are people good at knowing what is it that makes them happy? Or are we quite bad at it? 
Do yeah, we pursue things that we think are going to make us happy, but don't actually make us happy? It's a really good question. I spend, I spend so much of my life saying, people are different, we're heterogeneous, there's no one-size-fits-all approach, and then I go into one-size-fits-all approaches. Um, <laughs> the, the thing that, we're, that, we, that we do all share to some large degree is that we're not particularly good futurians. We're not particularly good at being able to predict which things will impact us in which ways and for how long. That's the key thing. Because everything around happiness, everything around what we do and how we feel is driven by attention, what we pay attention to. And what we're not very good at being able to predict is how much attention something will draw to itself into the longer term, right? So, for example, I might imagine a pay rise. It is true that the pay rise will make me feel good when I first get it because I'm paying attention to it. But what I'm not particularly good at being able to forecast is how I will withdraw attention very quickly from it. And some things continue to draw attention to themselves. Anxiety, depression, mental health problems do. But most things in life, we withdraw attention relatively quickly and we're not particularly good at predicting that. What do you think is the source of kind of distorted views about uh, happiness? We, we have narratives about what makes people happy. We find them in films, we find them in advertising, in popular culture in general. What, what's the source of kind of a misconception of happiness? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, there's lots of stories around what should make us happy. Um, I've been very interested in those narratives and where, not the etiology of them, not where they come from, but the consequences that they have. And they do prescribe a one-size-fits-all approach. You know, it's like be rich, be successful, be smart, get married, have kids. All of which for, well, actually, let's say two things. First of all, the success, status, income, education are good to a point, right? I mean, it is true, and we shouldn't stay, skate over this, that poverty, lack of social standing, lack of education makes people miserable. So it's right that the human condition will be motivated for more of those things when we're miserable, but we quickly reach a point where the constant accumulation of them is like an addiction, that we have this kind of more please, irrespective of how much we have, when very rarely will we say just enough, that we reach a point where we have enough of those things that we can stop or slow down or pay attention to other things that will make us happy. In the case of marriage and kids, well, there are no good RCTs, randomised controlled trials, where we allocate children to some people and not to others. That would be a beautiful experiment. I'd fucking love to do that. But I wouldn't get ethics approval. Um, so we've got lots of correlational associations. Right? We can't really know what the counterfactual would have been. But the data around most of these things shows huge variation. And, and we'll all know people whose kids are a blessing to them, and many people, and probably many more people, actually, whose kids are a real pain. And so knowing those, these things is really hard. But we have these stories that prescribe that a grown-up is somebody who gets married and has kids, and you're not really you know, a fully-fledged adult, particularly if you're female. That's, that's really the story. You meet a single woman who hasn't had children at 40, and you know, people will say, oh, bless. You know, right. She's actually doing fine <laughs> without a husband or without kids. But the story is so powerful that that's something that often she, you know, sometimes he, you know, ought to be motivated for. So these narratives can be good for us. They can provide coherence. They can provide structure and order to an otherwise chaotic world. But at the same time, they can get in the way of people leading lives that are authentic and true to themselves. So happiness is, in one sense, is kind of very personal, very private thing. And in some other cases, it's quite a public thing and, and a concern of public policy. And for many years, we've been using a measure to, to sort of claim how well a country is doing and how, how happy the people in it are, and that's GDP, right? How much money the country as a whole is making, basically. But you've been arguing that that's not a very good measure of, of how well people are doing, actually, in society, and that we should replace it with 
something else? What should we replace it with? Yeah, it's interesting that the economic activity measures were intended to measure activity and not measures of welfare. They weren't intended to be translated into measures of success. But they've almost been sort of converted into that over time. And we do, you're right, we see economic growth as being something that is good for us, again, irrespective of what level we're at and how much we have. And the sacrifices that we might be making to pursue it, that's really quite significant. And, and, and of course, those measures don't account for the non-market transactions that you know, take place. The time that we spend having a laugh with one another doesn't generate economic output, so it's not measured. So the time that we spend having a laugh with one another ought to feature somewhere in our metrics that we use to guide policy decisions. And I think sometimes, I think for policy, I'd rather use the term misery and suffering reduction than happiness promotion. It's almost like you can sort of take the piss a little bit out of happiness, you know, as a sort of soft, woolly policy goal. But you'd have to be pretty sadistic as a policymaker not to want to reduce misery and suffering. So I think sometimes the language matters. Um, and I think it's incumbent on public policymakers to reduce real experience suffering by as much as they can. What about measuring well-being? Like, how does a policymaker go about sort of evaluating how much well-being there is in a society? Yeah, again, I mean, I, I've said for a while, I'd love to find out how happy you are without asking you. Right. And maybe with modern technologies and observational data, there's ways in which I can infer that. Still, the best and simplest way is just to ask you how you feel. Right? So if you go to the doctors and you've got a pain in your knee, he or she will ask you how much it hurts. Right? They haven't got access to how it feels. And it's that subjective experience. Sometimes people will say, oh, happiness is all subjective. I'm like, well, that's the point. Our experiences of life are entirely subjective. Um, I've got tattoos and people ask me, do they hurt? I say, well, I can say how much they hurt me. I have no idea anyone who goes to a tattoo will say, you know, some people are screaming in pain for exactly the same, you know, the, the, for exactly the same tattoo in the same place as someone else is sitting there not in pain. It's that experience that really matters. And that's what we should be measuring more directly. So one question, I guess, is like, uh, even if we said, okay, there are ways of measuring people's well-being and maybe there are issues with subjectivity, maybe there's a way of resolving those, but say we find a way of evaluating well-being, is that necessarily going to be a good guide to public policy? I'm thinking here of like some counterexamples. For example, during the pandemic, right. there were lockdowns, and we now know that lockdowns were pretty terrible for people's well-being, right? They increased mental health problems, and especially with children in school and yeah. so on. So if a policymaker was to kind of evaluate that policy on the, on the basis of well-being, would they have made the right choice, or would they have been misguided? Yeah, it's a super question. I mean, it's a, the whole of COVID opens up a whole raft of questions and issues. Coming back to narratives, there was a really powerful narrative in the policy responses to preserve life at all costs. And it was literally focusing only, therefore, on preventing deaths from COVID as the policy response. It was like the morally superior approach to policy. Because the counter-narratives, like, what are the alternatives? Well, let people die, clearly not that. Um, proportionately balanced costs and benefits. That's actually the most powerful counter-narrative, but it's much weaker as a story. So when you're selling a story to the public, it's much harder to say balance costs and benefits. But that's what we should have been doing. And I do think that had we been doing that more, even at all, um, taking account of 
life expectancy differences, not just lives, but life experiences as well, how people are living and how well they're going to live, then we would have had a different set of policy responses that would have allowed people to engage in more social contact than we did. And actually, even if you don't care about happiness, we know that loneliness is a massive causal factor on how soon people die. So even if we only cared about life, life expectancy, we would have cared much more about social isolation than we did. If we put aside these kind of extreme cases of, you know, lockdowns and social isolation and so on, you mentioned loneliness. That's quite a yeah. sort of personal kind of situation someone finds themselves in. Can the state really intervene in things that affect our kind of day-to-day -day sort of personal life in any way? What kind of policies are we thinking here that would, would it be it's, able to affect that? It's a really good question about the role of the state because I say it is because from a personal perspective, my view towards the state has changed significantly over the two years of the policy responses to the pandemic. I've become much less trusting of state intervention than I was before. I mean, that's really, I don't know. Yeah, I think that has been a shift in me. I feel more libertarian instincts now than maybe I did before because I saw the power of the state and felt very uncomfortable with it. Mm. Um, and so it does remind us, irrespective of whether our personal views have changed on this, that a lot of these interventions, particularly around social isolation, around individual isolation, around social capital, will be done through non-state means, through community interventions, through people coming together away from statist interventions. Um, but it will still require a little bit of a nudge and a shove here and there um, from the state in order to address some of the challenges that we face around loneliness, around you know the amount of time that we spend the little amount of time that we spend genuinely enjoying ourselves. We talked earlier about how each of us has a sort of kind of personal measure of, you know, what's the right balance between pleasure and purpose and all the rest of it. What about happiness across different cultures? Does that kind of change? And if so, how does that affect how, you know, multicultural societies like, say, you know, the one in the UK is to be treated differently than a kind of more monocultural society? Yeah, it's a good question about cultures. I, one of the things I, I realise that lots of us, all, all of us do actually, it's probably not just academics, is we start a sentence or a stream of consciousness with really good evidence-based stuff and then we start meandering into stuff that's less clear and then making shit up at the end. And I don't want to start making stuff up. I actually have to say that my knowledge and understanding of cultural variations is relatively weak. And so I would be giving you not much more than a lay person's interpretation of that evidence. I'd rather want to stick to stuff. When I, when I tell you something, I want you to know that I'm saying it because I know the answer <laughs> and not because I'm making it up. Most of what I think I know about happiness comes from English-speaking countries, comes from English-speaking populations, um, comes from UK and US data, largely. Um, and so I'm kind of speaking a bit outside of my comfort zone to say anything beyond And when that. it comes to, to the US and the UK, are you finding any significant differences or at a long view, do they look quite similar in terms of that question? Yeah, so much, as you'd expect, it turns on what we ask people and the way that we define happiness. We have a very widely used question, which is asking people how satisfied they are with their lives overall. That's a very commonly used question. Wording varies, but it's basically a, a sort of reflective question. And I have been quite critical of that question because it doesn't tap into the experiential self quite so much, right? So, you know, when I reflect upon my life, how well is it going? Well, I don't reflect upon it very often, actually. I, I live it most of the time. So um, we get different answers when we look more directly at, at people's experiences. And I think that when we, when we do that, like, for example, in the life satisfaction data, the most robust finding is the U-shaping age. 
it's across pretty much every country in the world that people in their midlife are the least happy compared to the younger and the older people. As someone who's coming just through the bottom of the curve, I look at young people in pity rather than envy because I'm going up the curve now as I get older, they're falling down the bottom. But when we look at feelings and emotions, it's much less clear. Um, there's some suggestion that young people experience uh, less purpose than people, like, like, young, like people in their early 20s experience less purpose than people that are, that are older. And the, and the pleasure graph is a little bit more complicated, but the most robust finding on age comes from the life satisfaction data. Mm. You mentioned earlier parenthood and how it can be quite a challenging experience for some people. Yes. And so if you ask parents, you know, what was the best moment in your day, they almost never, you know, say, oh, when I was with my child, but it's usually the opposite. It was like when they finally had some time of their own. And yet, on the other hand, there's this kind of issue of, like, purpose that if, you know, that somehow they feel more overly satisfied. So yeah. are these things clashing? So is life satisfaction, can it be at odds with how happy you feel day to day in your experiences? Yeah, I, th I think it can. I, I, there's a couple of reasons why I started thinking about purpose as an experience. And one of those was my decision to, to have kids, where all the happiness data would have suggested that I shouldn't have bothered. <laughs> or at least, at best, neutral. <laughs> but I was thinking, well, maybe there's something in the experiences of time I spend with my children that feels purposeful. And, and I think that's been true. Um, but I, I could just be fucking deluding myself. It could be cognitive dissonance writ large. <laughs> that actually, now I've got them, I've got to find some way in which they're going to make me happy to stop me killing them. Um, but there, it's quite interesting looking at what I wrote about children in the two books that I wrote, the ages that they were when I wrote the books. So when I wrote Happiness by Design, the kids were young, like three, three four years old, horrible. I had a friend who said to me, I was like, I think they were turning five, and I'm like, when am I going to enjoy this? And he said, listen, if you enjoy the conversation with a five-year-old, you're not fit to be a parent. I took that as quite comforting. Um, but then when I wrote Happy Ever After, um, they were like 10, 9, 10, 11, so much nicer, so much more fun to be round, like proper little people. Now they're teenagers, <laughs> I, think I, might, I think my views might change. And so it's really important, actually, that point about things changing over the life course, not just of your children, but your own life. And this idea that you sort of take a snapshot at one moment in time and can say, this is what should make you happy. Well, it's obviously going to change. You mentioned to me earlier you don't like being asked whether you're <laughs> happy or not. But do you think that we all, to some extent, feel this pressure of being happy? And is that pressure somehow an obstacle to actually kind of living our life and enjoying it, rather than constantly worrying about, are we happy enough? What can we do to get, become more happy? Yeah. Like I, like I said before, you know, poverty makes people miserable, but you don't want to be accumulating too much. You want to be thinking about what makes you happy and getting some sort of audit and some feedback, but you don't want to be thinking about it too hard all of the time because then it becomes all-consuming and you're going to be miserable thinking about how happy you are. So what I'd like to think is that we can sort of do these little audits, do these light-touch assessments of the things that make us feel good and things that don't, and then design our environments in ways that let us get on with doing the things that make us feel better and not doing the things that make us feel worse without having to think too hard about it afterwards. Where's your work on happiness taking you next? Good question. I've moved, I've moved into an interest in polarisation and taking sides. Um, that's the working title for my next book. Um, I did a duck rabbit podcast at the LSE last year, you know, the duck rabbit illusion. It's a nice metaphor for how we become polarised. You start seeing the image one way, you see it's a duck, everyone, and you surround yourself with people who see it similarly, till in the end, how could it possibly be a rabbit? Um, and I'm very interested in our reluctance to 
genuinely listen to people that disagree with us. Um, everyone will say, I like people who disagree. Actually, we don't, right? You just want people to nod their head in agreement rather than shake it in disapproval. So I'm really interested in thinking about how we can design environments in ways that make it easier for us to listen to people that we don't agree with. And I think that's been really interesting for me during the COVID times is that I have found friends <laughs> that I would, wouldn't have otherwise known as being friends because we've agreed on particular responses or the responses that we should have had but, but didn't, but disagree on so many other issues. And also, you can just have friends that disagree with you about everything. <laughs> but, but, but rarely we do. Um, so I'm really kind of interested in that. I don't know. It's interesting from a happiness lens. I've mm. kind of approached that not, not necessarily through a happiness lens, but through a more of a kind of, I don't know, tolerance, understanding, social progress lens. I don't know whether, you know, it's probably a lot of the time that that tolerance will make us miserable. So I'm kind of, that's, that's a really interesting thing to pick apart. As someone who's in, who thinks it's all about happiness, well, kind of, will I be challenged a bit more on that when I get more into the polarisation issues? Paul Dolan, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.